You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's passage can be found in Exodus 14, 5 through 29. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pihahirath in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to, to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not what we said to you in Egypt, leave us alone that we, we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom, whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent." The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided." And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. 
This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. What more can you say to us than you already have said? And so we are thankful that you have given us your word. May it be a light into our path this evening, and may it be bread to our souls. We're thankful for this evening and for your word. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, good evening. Uh, there's several of you I haven't met uh, just seeing you this evening. I've several that, you, uh, that I, ha- I did meet before the service, so I'm glad you're here with us. We have been going through the book of Exodus, and Diane just read a big chunk. I realized that was a bit long, but I mean, there's kind of we kind of had to do the whole thing. You can't just like take out some of those parts. Uh, but it's been uh, really beneficial to my soul, this walk through this book. So I hope it has been for you as well. I've had a great 4th of July. We had a really busy week and then like an entire Thursday, just full of yard work. We were beat and sunburned and tired. So we celebrated our independence from Daniel Bruce and our other English overlords uh, on Thursday. Uh, by grilling hot dogs and eating ice cream and watching Independence Day. Uh, it was awesome. I, I love that movie. Uh, I didn't realize, I think it had been like a decade since I had seen that movie, uh, and it's great. It holds up. Uh, most good stories follow the narrative three acts uh, that Independence Day follows. Most stories just aren't as explicitly clear that act one, act two, and act three are beginning. Uh, in that movie, the, the, at the beginning, it's a black screen, and it says, July 2nd, and then after the first act, then it goes black, and then it's July 3rd, and then July 4th. Uh, In Act 1, on July 2nd, you, uh, not every movie is not July 2nd, but every good story uh, has a first act in which you introduce the characters. You set up and start the conflict as a storyteller. In Act 2, the conflict begins getting worse, and then it usually bottoms out, where like hope is lost. In that movie, the first lady dies, the nuclear missile doesn't work. Spoiler, sorry, you've had like 23 years, so I guess I don't have to give you too much of a spoiler. But in Act 3, the conflict usually, and in this movie, certainly will reach its climax in which there is some tension, like hanging in the air. Will it or won't it turn out? And then there's resolution. But the climax and resolution of Act 3 isn't generally as literarily satisfying without the loss of hope at the end of Act 2. J.R.L. Tolkien coined the term of this kind of literary device as a catastrophe, which is complete darkness, hopelessness, followed then by what he says is a sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur. Think like Gandalf showing up over the horizon in sudden and unexpected light. Complete darkness and hopelessness uh, intervened by miraculous grace. Jeff Goldblum's virus to the mothership wasn't necessarily sudden and miraculous. Uh, It was the plan all along. Uh, But it was against all odds. These are two humans against superior numbers and superior technology. And in Exodus 14, we have the greatest catastrophe of the Old Testament. Israel appears to be completely without hope, with imminent death staring it in its face, with superior military numbers, with superior technology uh, mounting against them. When, then, a sudden and miraculous grace appears. So let's get right into it. We'll follow the narrative arc tonight in three acts. The same three acts that a good story generally follows. And the first act is God leads his people, act two, 
even through difficulty, and then act three, that he may be praised. So God leads his people even through difficulty that he may be praised. So act one, God leads his people. Finally, after the Passover that we saw two weeks ago, and then after what we saw last week, the institution of the Passover meal, the consecration of the firstborn, the feast of unleavened bread that was to be celebrated for Israel's future, finally now Israel is on the move. They have left Egypt, and since I had Diane start reading in chapter 4, let's, or 14, let's pick up at the end of chapter 13, beginning in verse 17, to set the stage of this narrative. Verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord, Yahweh, went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, and that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not, did not depart from before the people. So God is finally leading his people out of Egypt, his firstborn son. But the firstborn son is still very young and very immature. Israel hasn't yet seen much of the world. They're like finally leaving the, uh, the house that they've grown up into and they don't know what to expect. When you've got really little kids, if you uh, see them, put a plate, they fill up a plate of spaghetti. No matter how much they think that they think that they can make it from the counter to the table, you know better as a parent that they will not make it without dumping everything on the floor. So generally as a parent, you take the spaghetti for them to the table. Even as your children might grow older, you've perhaps seen a lack of self-control in their life as younger children in other areas. So as a preteen, you might tell them that no, you cannot have a smartphone yet. No, you may not have your own social media accounts yet. Young folks, this is not because your parents hate you. Uh, This is because they are wiser than you, and they have just been on the boat of life for longer than you have, and have seen things that you haven't seen, uh, and care for you in wisdom. So kids often don't realize that the danger they're, they're in. They often can overestimate their own abilities, but a good parent can see their future failings. Well, God here, And Exodus 14 is a good parent. And more than just a good human parent, he has the added divine attributes of omniscience. He can see and know all things. He can see into the hearts of his children and know their deepest desires, know their deepest anxieties and insecurities and temptations. And he also has the divine ability of foreknowledge and that he can see the future. He is removed from time and he can see what would happen if Israel were to continue in the way that they would continue in. And so because of all this, he doesn't lead them the short way through the land of the Philistines, but through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Had they gone in the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, this would have been a two-week journey. Two weeks to get us to like the very, the very beginning of the book of Joshua. That would have been all that it would have taken. But two weeks had they arrived at all. Two weeks had they arrived as a people who knew God and who understood themselves to be his people. 
In life, the shortest distance between two points often is not a straight line. This is definitely in the, case, the case in parenting, uh, that God is leading his children here very often. Uh, I can choose to take time, take time in the short term and in the long term in order to bring wisdom and maturity in my children. Oftentimes, I can get a job done far more efficiently by myself, but oftentimes I want my kids, my boys, to turn their screwdriver themselves, to learn how to do it, often poorly, often inefficiently, but that they might learn. Oftentimes it takes time and energy that I don't want to take uh, to discipline and to have conversations with them, but I want uh, them to grow and to mature. The line of maturity is up and down, and it seemingly can waste all sorts of time, forwards and backwards. And it was true for Israel as well. Because of his love for his children, because God knew of their weaknesses and their temptations better than they themselves did, because he desired their maturity and their growing faith, he takes them the long way. I've shared the example of Christian sanctification as a man with a yo-yo. There are ups and downs, for sure, of greater obedience and disobedience in the Christian life. But generally, the Christian life is that of a man, of a yo- man with a yo-yo who is going up a flight of stairs, Continual progress, that of the highest highs being higher than the highest highs were in the past and the lowest lows being higher than the lowest lows were in the past. And I still think that is totally true. Over the period of long periods of time, we ought to see uh, progress and growth and maturity as Christians, but often the Christian life is not as clean cut and clear as like a stock market graph over time. Oftentimes, It's less like this and more like this. Just a mess, a jumbled up mess of where am I? Why am I sinning in this way? And why am I uh, being still fearful in this way? It's not a straight line at all. Now, saying this in the context of Exodus 13 may not be helpful because it is certainly not God. It is not God's fault that Israel and that we are not constantly growing straight lines of spiritual progress. But all that to say, praise God for his grace. Praise God for his commitment to his messed up, to his fearful, to his anxious, to his uh, disoriented children who have no idea where they are going and that he is more committed to their progress than that they are. Praise God for the gospel that makes a people that ought not feel tempted to come here on a Sunday to put on a show of spirituality might say to each other, this has been a terrible week of fear, of anxiety, of sin, of disobedience. And I know that. And this week is not as good as last Sunday or last year's Sunday, but I'm following him. And I am following the author and perfecter of my faith, the cloud of fire which leads us as his people as best I can and praise God for his grace. God is with his people, leading them as a cloud by day, fire by night. And these are backward and forward pointing pictures of the appearances of God to his people. The big, nice theological word of an appearance of God is called a theophany, when God appears to people. An appearance of God in Exodus 3, God appeared to Moses as fire. In the burning bush, later theophanies will appear in this book of cloud and smoke as Yahweh will descend on the mountain and then onto and into the tabernacle and later the temple. 
It is God with his people leading them, not departing from them. Verse 21 tells us that it is Yahweh, the Lord, that went before them. He is leading them exactly where he wants them to go as a good shepherd. 22, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And the scene here in the wilderness should be in our heads whenever we pray as Jesus taught us to pray of lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When we pray that prayer, it's not as if God would lead us into temptation had we not asked him not to. God does not lead us into temptation. God does not tempt us. But rather, as we pray that prayer, that we might pray, uh, God, as you did with Israel in the wilderness, keep taking us, keep leading us, even in the long way, if necessary. Keep leading us but do deliver us from evil. You know my fears, my insecurity. You know my temptation to worship all kinds of things other than you. Take me the long way that I might grow in my love and in my worship and my trust and dependence on you and deliver me from evil. So God leads his people. And then related to the first, now second, God leads his people even through difficulty. Act two. The parting of the Red Sea is perhaps the most well-known story in the Old Testament. I was just trying to think through, just, I don't know, if you asked any old everyday American on the street uh, what stories they might come up with in the Bible, and maybe David and Goliath is perhaps the only other one that I could perhaps think of that would rival it in just its just well-knownness in our culture. Uh, there are like tons, uh, I grew up loving the far side you read, man, I loved The Far Side, a comic uh, in the newspaper, and uh, there are lots of Far Side and other comic knockoffs of Moses as a kid, of him like parting his milk out of uh, his cereal bowl or parting the water of his baby pool. Uh, Gary Larson has Moses standing in front of the mirror, like parting his hair, and it's great. Uh, Moses and the parting of the Red Sea, just like they go together, right? So we won't spend the rest of our time together tonight going through every single detail of this chapter that you heard Diane read, Uh, but let's definitely go back and try to figure what's going on in this very well-known event. Why did God orchestrate and act in this way? The first thing we read comes also from before verse 5 where Diane began reading. In verse 2 of chapter 14, God has Moses turn the people around. So they're already going the wrong way. And then he has them turn around and he runs them right up into the water. Right up, he puts Israel, he puts his people right between Egypt and the Red Sea. Militarily, this is an enormous blunder. Like if perhaps, maybe hypothetically, the Egyptians decide to come out against them, there's nowhere to go. But this is not hypothetical. This is exactly what God wants to happen. I am, like, enormously terrible at the game of chess. Uh, like, even my 10 and 9-year-old can often beat me. I, I love the idea of chess. I like watching movies about chess. I like reading about chess, re- reading strategy about chess. I like watching documentaries about chess. I'm really, really bad at it. But what good chess players can do is plan things to three, four, 10, 15 moves in advance. This is something my brain is not capable of. But uh, oftentimes creating a trap and then ambush. 
and that the enemy might walk into. And this is exactly what is happening here at the Red Sea. God tells Moses in verse 4, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God is not just wanting to redeem his people. That is a goal of his. But again, he could have done that without the entire spectacle of the ten plagues in Egypt. God is acting in a way here that Israel, yes, but that also Egypt and the entire world might know that Yahweh is the God of the heavens and the earth, that there is no rival, and that the weight of his glory belongs to him and him alone. The glory that is due to him is not to be like hacked up and separated and divvied out to all sorts of other kinds of lesser or imaginary gods. Pharaoh has temporarily conceded to Yahweh's power, his glory, and his greatness by letting his people go from Egypt, but he has not turned in repentance for a lifetime of hatred, a lifetime of violence against God's people. So God begins to move him toward checkmate. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So Pharaoh and his army, over 600 chariots, but that's likely just like the tanks of the army. There are likely many other horses and foot soldiers accompanying these 600 chariots. This is just a, a massive ancient attack force that is heading out, presumably to force Israel back, to force them to turn around and come back to their old slavery of Egypt. And when the people see the army approaching, they understandably, end of verse 10, they understandably feared greatly. I mean, who among them would not be in massive fear seeing this huge army approaching them? And the people cried out to the Lord. And if we stopped reading there in verse 10, I'm not sure that we would know that Israel had done anything wrong. They were afraid and they cried out to the Lord. This is a great first response. But then their fear quickly turns into faithlessness. Verse 11, they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Like maybe you, Moses, maybe you were in on it with Pharaoh. Maybe the two of you had conspired to kill us all along, but you didn't want all of our dead corpses in Egypt. So the two of you conspired to bring us out here to the wilderness where you might kill us. Or verse 12, they're reminding Moses, don't you remember when we told you that we didn't want to leave Egypt? Like, sure, we were slaves. We were living miserable lives of bondage to whatever the Egyptians wanted us to do, but at least we were alive then. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. It'd be better to be a living slave than a dead free man here in the wilderness. Now, at first glance, it's very easy for us to shake our heads and wag our fingers at the Israelites, these dumb and forgetful people. I mean, seriously, like have they so quickly forgotten the hail and the frogs and the locusts and the darkness and the boils and the Passover itself? This was like 24 hours ago, seemingly. Have they forgotten? Don't they know that the same power that has redeemed them out of Israel will still be with them to keep them and to uh, preserve them? And don't they know what's ahead of them? Can't they see into the future like we can? 
of the land of milk and honey that awaits them, the kingdom of David, the wisdom of Solomon, the presence of God living amongst them. Well, no, they can't see that. They don't have the benefit of knowing what we know, of knowing the story which lies ahead. And yet, I hope that it doesn't take much more than like five seconds of reflection in our own hearts to see how often we can hardly be much different. In moments of fear, instead of our thinking turning to like, God, I I know that you are sovereign in all things. I know that you are with me in this moment. So what is it that you are wanting to teach me? What is it that you are wanting to show me about yourself? What is it that you are wanting to show others in this situation? God, I am unsure. I am lacking in faith right now. I am afraid, but I know that you are with me. Hear me and be with me. I want to believe. Help my unbelief. But instead... How many countless times per day does our fear quickly and immediately turn to unbelief? Our fear turning even to outright blaming of God, outright anger that you would have allowed this to happen. Where are you? I know better than you do. I would have orchestrated my life's circumstances in such a better way if I was omniscient and omnipotent as you are. You are failing. How could you? How could you let this happen? How could you bring me and trap me so closely on the shores of financial ruin? How could you trap me so close to these waters of physical discomfort? or a lack of health? How could you abandon me here to die alone in this marriage or in this, with these family or these coworkers or this boss? There is seemingly no way out. And I know that I should respond in faith and in hope in your promises, but I don't want to. In fact, I almost wish that I didn't know anything about you so that I wouldn't feel so bad about blaming you. I wouldn't feel so bad about trying to muster up some fake joy or obedience. I almost wish you had never intervened in my life at all and that I was just back in the old way. Anybody? All of us, I think, if we were very clearly... Uh, discerning with our own hearts and our own motives. But in response to this angry blaming, in response to this accusing, in response to this lack of faith, Moses says to the people in verse 13, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord, Yahweh, will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Moses is telling the people that Gandalf comes with the sunrise. A sudden and miraculous grace will now appear, and all you have to do is watch it. Israel was never in danger. They were never in danger. How much it looked like they were, they were not. It was next to impossible for them to see that, but had they just remembered the Passover— had they just remembered that God knew that they would not remember, and so he instituted 
he instituted feasts and festivals to cultivate remembrance. Had they remembered all that, then they would have not forgotten, but they forgot. God would intervene now with such sudden and miraculous grace when all hope seemed lost that he might get glory, that he might get worship, that he might get the renown of the peoples. And all Israel has to do is stand there without fear and watch. But it is the human condition to defend, to fight, to try to protect ourselves. It is the human condition to look around at our circumstances and immediately begin thinking of plans for the way out. Immediately begin thinking of plans of why this is wrong and how I can fix it. Charles Spurgeon once said this, I dare say you will think it is a very easy thing to stand still, but it is one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. I find that marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. It is perhaps the first thing we learn in the drill of human armies, but it is one of the most difficult to learn under the captain of our salvation. To stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit, long experience and much grace. So maybe it shouldn't be too easy for us to blame Israel here. They are like some fresh reinforcements on the front lines. They have like paratrooped in to join the hardened soldiers that have been fighting for months or years, and they are admittedly a little gun-shy. While the hardened soldiers next to them might have been a little bit, they, they might stand tall when shells or bullets are flying over and exploding next to them. Israel, is the, this is the first time that they have really uh, been out on the lines of war with their God, and they are diving to the first foxhole that they see. I know a pastor in Dallas who said, an older Christian in my life had more peace than me about a hard situation today. I said, you have more faith than me, and he responded, no, I just have more experience with a faithful God. I'll never forget that, he said. People grow as they grow in their experience with a God who keeps his promise. Then they grow in their faith. And so as we grow as more seasoned and battle-hardened Christians in the thickness and difficulty of life, we can more often and readily preach to ourselves, settle down, heart. Like this, whatever I'm experiencing right now, good or bad, settle down. It is not my main thing. In good times and bad and joy and fear, settle down. Whatever is before me, whatever is behind me, this is not my main thing. The God who is my Lord and my life, my light and my salvation, my rock, my fortress, my defense, he is with me and he is my main thing. And getting attention or not getting attention from someone that you'd like to give you the attention in your life, in your children's success or their failure, in your success or your failure, Settle down, heart. This is not my main thing. The God who is with me, who has been faithful to his promises, is. So Israel shouldn't necessarily be commended for their fear, their lack of faith at all, but they do have very little experience with a faithful God. And so God will fight for them decisively. He parts the waters. There are walls of water on either side so that Israel might walk through. And then he uses that same water to bring about final judgment for Egypt. Ironically, 
when Pharaoh wanted to bring death to Israel by throwing them into the waters of the Nile, now God brings death to Egypt by throwing them into the water. Up until this point in Exodus, Israel's story has been a story of belonging to Egypt, of service to Pharaoh. Now, Israel is born as their own nation, belonging only to God. Like, a good movie of this event would have huge, swelling soundtrack going on as the Egyptians are going through. Like, deafening roar of winds and water and horses neighing and whatever else. It is building, it is building, it is building, and then as the loudness even intensifies as the waters crash down, and then what happens? The winds stop, the water calms, and the music goes silent. And then there's Israel, just like standing there on the eastern shore of the Red Sea with their jaws on the ground, standing there at peace, finally and fully free from Egypt for the first time in their lives, standing in freedom. Excuse the weirdness of this, but they, Israel is like born out of the watery womb of the Red Sea. It opens, it gives them birth, and then it closes behind them that they might never return to that womb, to that country of slavery. And this is the imagery that Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians 10 too, when he says that Israel was baptized. Israel was baptized into the sea. So now baptism on this side of the cross acts in the same way for those who have been decisively saved by God, decisively saved of no doing of their own, that all they had to do was watch They stood by and watched and received all of the benefits of the warrior God, receiving all the benefits of life and redemption by faith, and now they just stand there on the eastern shore, standing there, looking at judgment, but now standing in peace with their jaws on the ground. This act of deliverance at the Red Sea will be the event most often referred to throughout the rest of the Old Testament, in the narrative accounts, in the Psalms, in the prophets, even in the next chapter, chapter 15 of responsive worship. And so baptism is today. For those who have received life, who have received redemption by faith, freedom from slavery of sin and death by the work of Christ on their behalf, baptism is a symbolic moment of deliverance from watery judgment and death but that God brings through to the other side of new life, never to return to that old life again. In, in 1522, Martin Luther, he's, he's, he's kind of on the run. He's kind of a, a criminal from the established church, and he, he is exiled away, away. He's hiding in this castle, and while there, he's hiding for nine months or so, he begins to translate the Bible into German a language that the everyday people might have God's word for the first time in their lives available to them. And during these long days and nights of translation in the castle, he finds himself discouraged. He finds himself afraid. And he often found himself seemingly personally attacked by the devil who came to him in this room. And legend has it that he even threw his inkwell that he was writing from at the wall at his invisible attacker. But one thing that got him through those many months that many outside of his room heard him screaming over and over, night by night, was baptisatus sum. I am baptized, 
he would yell at the devil. I am baptized. While our theology of baptism is drastically different than that of Lutheran theology, the decisiveness and point in history nature of baptism is the same. God has acted decisively. He has won the battle and I am reborn. So you might shout out the next time that you are in a moment of doubt, the next moment of fear or apprehension or anxiety or temptation, you might shout out, I am baptized. I am reborn. The Father has loved me, has given me new birth. There is a moment in time which he has saved me. There is a moment in time which I can point to and remember of which I declared my faith in his promises and the church affirmed me in my faith in his promises. Help my unbelief. Remind me of the past. Help me move in forward grace and faith. I am reborn. I am baptized. But how can that be? How can it be that we who are just as Egypt and just as Israel, just as idolatrous and stubborn and angry, the reason that we can be reborn, the reason that we can receive life and mercy instead of death and judgment is because Jesus went through the waters of judgment on our behalf. In Mark 10, Jesus asks his boasting disciples, they are all boasting about who will do most for the kingdom and who deserves more in the kingdom. And Jesus asks them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which, with which I am to be baptized? He's not talking about the time that John baptized him in the river, but the coming baptism of his cross where he would be overwhelmed in judgment and sink to the bottom of the sandy sea of death for three days. But then in the greatest catastrophe of all time, where hope had seemed all gone and lost, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. And so here we are, standing on the solid ground of the eastern shore of the Sea of Judgment, because Christ first went through the chaos of watery judgment on our behalf. He walked through and was enveloped that we might walk through and not be, that we might walk through in peace. Here we are on the eastern side of the water singing with confidence and with hope on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking, watery, shifting sand. All other things that I might be tempted toward putting my hope and my confidence and my trust and my faith in is nothing. It might look like a shiny and powerful chariot and horse and sword, but it is shifting sand and has no power to save. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand in confidence and in hope and in peace. So God leads his people even through difficulty, not always on the straightest line, but on the one always of love and of his presence, so that now lastly, that he might be praised. So after this whole thing, we read, beginning in chapter 14, verse 30, Thus Yahweh, the Lord, saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. 
In verse 1, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. And what follows through verse 21 of chapter 15 is sometimes called Moses' song or even sometimes Miriam's song for the way that she and the other women respond also at the end or even the song of the sea. But this song is the first recorded song in the Bible, but it will certainly not be the last. In addition to the 150 psalms that make up the book of Psalms, which are all originally musical songs that Israel sang, there are several others, like Exodus 15, throughout the, throughout, throughout the, the Bible, which usually follow a big event of God's deliverance, including uh, Deborah's song in Judges 5, or David's song in 2 Samuel 22, or Hannah, or Mary, or Zechariah. There's something about when God delivers people that they just want to respond with singing. And so in response to what God has done, Moses begins singing. He says, verse 1, I will sing to the Lord. I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And then he goes on to describe how God has thrown the Egyptians into judgment, thrown them into the water, and has utterly destroyed them. And to our modern ears, this seems like a weird thing to like jump around and sing in joy, clapping. You have drowned all of my enemies. That seems really weird. But consider the reality of verse 9, where Moses reflects that the enemy said, I will pursue and I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. There was no hope for Israel. They were surrounded and they were about to all be slaughtered or taken back into slavery. They, the promises of God looked like they were in real trouble, but God acted He acted in verse 10. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Moses and the people of Israel, they just can't contain themselves. The reality of God's actions in history have created in them such a response that they're like a pot of water on the stovetop. They begin boiling a little bit and boiling, and then they just overflow out through the crack of the lid, spilling over everywhere. And the result of God's actions, which Moses is so overflowing about, well, they're twofold. One, that God will bring his people safely into his dwelling place. Verse 13, Moses is singing. He says, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode, your holy house. And verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Finally, for the first time in their history, Israel will have a land of their own to dwell with their God. They will be a people with a place. God has not just redeemed them out of slavery, but he will keep them and he will deliver them to to safety. But the second result is that, number two, the nations would know God and even fear him when they are outside of covenant with him. Verse 14, The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom are, are dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread 
fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are as still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by by whom you have purchased. Again, this is not the kind of thing that you or I might be jumping around and clapping and singing about. But think about it. Up until this point, God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is not known by people on earth. Up until this point, he has only made himself known to an enslaved people. So if he is known, God is minimized or mocked. He's just the slaves people, the, slave, the Egyptian slaves uh, God, but no more. The glory due to God is now flying out as fast as the news from the Red Sea will take it. And so the worship of his people through song flies out even faster. God's people are a singing people. For whatever reason, God has created music to be emotionally powerful. Movie producers know this when they put a score or a soundtrack under a film. We know it as consumers when we buy music or we buy a ticket to go to a concert. We, we want to be moved. And God knows it when he tells his people to sing praises to him. Like we could sit here and read a stanza of poetry, silently or even out loud. We could read it out loud read on a screen even, say, in days of peace and days of rest, in times of loss and loneliness, though rich or poor, your word is true that all my ways are known to you. And that's emotionally evocative. That's powerful prose and theology. But there is something deep within our psychology, something that allows the truth that uh, can tumble around in our brains, this the truth and deep theology in our minds that can then, through music, join with the emotion of our heart, that our hearts and our minds and our heart, soul, strength, and mind might all yell together, yes, in a way in which the poetry that I just read, when we sing that, it does something different. And yet at the same time, corporate worship gatherings are not primarily about creating a worship experience. While our emotions ought to be engaged, they are not the thing which are to lead us. Because after all, worship is not about how we feel. Worship is about the one to whom we are giving our worship. We are here to declare what God has done and how he has destroyed our enemy of sin in the watery grave of, and judgment of his victory. We are here to respond emotionally with clapping, with dancing, with moving around, with emotional response, perhaps even with laughing, with shouting, or with tears of what he has done. And we want to continue to encourage all of us to be free to respond emotionally to the truths which we are singing in our minds, but also responding to with our hearts. And with the hope and the expectation that in all of these things that we are singing about, that we are responding to, that we are considering, that we are allowing to move about 12 inches or so from our brains to our hearts, we want to with hope and expectation, respond that the nations might know and fear him. 
The songs of the Old Testament always follow an act of deliverance. And in Revelation 5, the Apostle John sees a time when all the saints from all the nations surround the throne of God, and together they are singing a new song. It's like John, as he's writing in Revelation, as he sees a vision, he sees of a new act of God saving and redeeming his people, and the people are singing to the Lamb, the one who has been slain, and they are singing a new song, a new song of Moses, a new song of Hannah, a new song of Mary, a new song of Zechariah, a new song for what God has done to save his people. I was sharing earlier this week with a couple of guys at lunch of what one commentator says of the Exodus story. He says, in one sense, the Bible as a whole can be summarized as God's intervening to bring his chosen people out of a foreign hostile place and back to the chosen land, back to Eden. This is the whole story of the Bible. God intervening to save and bring his people out of a hostile foreign land back to the land of him. And so while we've hopefully found some decent ways of meaningful application tonight, perhaps we can say that it is not so much that we apply Exodus to our lives, but that Exodus is applied to us. The Red Sea is our story. Moses' song is our song. Miriam, with her tambourine and dancing, is us. The Lord has triumphed gloriously. He has disarmed and humiliated our enemy of our own sin, and he has redeemed us for his service. This is my story. This is my song. This ought to be what our lives are about, a life of story and song of what? Praising my Savior all the day long for what he has done. He has triumphed gloriously, and let's respond now, even in prayer, in response and faith of, of his triumph, and then in singing together. Let's pray. God, we do recognize that you have triumphed gloriously in the cross of Christ. You are a man of war, and you have defeated our enemy. You have redeemed us from slavery to sin, and you have delivered us for service to you. Out of watery judgment, we have crossed over from death to life. So, God, in our fear, we pray that you would help us to trust you. In our unbelief, help us to remember your promises in our hard-heartedness, help us to remember your love. In our sin, help us to see your glory. In our worship, help us to respond with all of our heart, with our soul, with our strength, with our mind. You deserve all of us, God, all of us, every ounce of our being. Help us, consecrate us, set us apart for your worship, for your glory, that your praise might be known, that your name might be known, for you are great and greatly to be praised. So in Christ's name and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray all of these things. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.